Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fult. I'm a professor, podcast host. I work on a farm and on our space in Florida, we do grow a limited number of olives. And people normally think of olives as the salty, briny little bubbles that are uh, have the red thing in the middle that they buy in a jar at the grocery store, at least here in the United States. But olives have a much more important role if you look at them worldwide. The types of varieties that are available, the use in terms of oil as well as through this processing and brining. And many different cultures have a very strong adhesion to olives and I would like to think a bright future for olives. However, there's a number of threats that lay in the way of profitable and sustainable production. And so I wanted to talk to an expert in this area, and I'm speaking with Professor Lorenzo Leone. He's an olive breeder at IFAPO in the Department of Genetics and Biotechnology in Córdoba, Spain. So welcome to the podcast, Professor Leone. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it is really great that we were able to do this because I've hoped to have you on for a long time. Um, and I, I think you, um, maybe from my introduction, understand my knowledge of olives is very limited. Can you help me understand a little bit about what are the major products we get from olives? Um, what are the major olive producing regions of the world? And can you give me a little bit more about how important they are to certain regions and certain cultures. Okay, but well, probably uh, olive products are still not uh, fully known and appreciated in some countries. But uh, for us here in, in producing countries such as Spain, uh, I can say that olives are more than a crop, are fully linked to our culture. So um, there are two major products from olive, uh, olive oil and table olives. So uh, to give you a, an idea, the average uh, world olive uh, oil production in the last years could be something around 3 million tons, which is more or less the double uh, of the amount of 30 years ago. Of this production, uh, Spain is clearly the main production country with around half of the total world production. And to give an idea of the, of the value, considering uh, the current market price uh, higher than 3 euros per kilo, it means that a uh, total value probably exceeding uh, $10 billion only for olive oil. Then the second product is table olives. Uh, the total production is similarly around 3 million tons, tons uh, with in this case uh, uh, countries such as uh, Egypt and Turkey as the main uh, world producers. And, and finally, let me uh, let me uh, tell that uh, these are the main products, but uh, there are only uh, there are also some sub products of the olive growing and the olive oil extraction industry that uh, could be used as a sources of uh, biomass for energy, compost for fertilization, etc., which is uh, important in these uh, times of uh, circular economy. That's very good. And as an olive breeder, 
Um, are there many different kinds of olives, many different varieties? And can you tell me about the existing olive, uh, I guess you would call them orchards. These are um, pretty much old growth. I mean, are there trees that are hundreds or maybe thousands of years old? Or tell me about that too. Okay, um, let me explain just a little bit about the olive domestication. Probably it's not clear yet, but uh, probably began in the Near East uh, region during the Chalcolithic period, uh, let's say around 6,000 uh, 6, uh, years ago. And many different cultivars were then selected in different areas, and many of them uh, hopefully remained important, uh, usually located around its uh, probably area of origin. So it is uh, estimated that uh, nowadays there are more than uh, 1,200 varieties still under cultivation all over the world, and telling all over the world. But the, the situation is still unclear, and um, there are problems for, with the identification of cultivar. There are uh, many cases of uh, what is uh, called homonymic cases. I mean, uh, the same names used for different cultivar. For instance, uh, manzanilla is a generic denomination, meaning uh, apple uh, shape. So it's used for many different cultivars, usually with a surname, uh, manzanilla de Sevilla, manzanilla casereña, manzanilla... There are many different uh, cultivars, but all of them are called manzanilla. Uh, similarly, there are cases of uh, synonyms, I mean, uh, different names for the same cultivar. For instance, in, in Spain, the main cultivar is called Picual and has more than 20 different names. So in each uh, part of the country, it's called in a different way, but all of them refers to the same cultivar Picual. So still, there are a lot of variability, hopefully, but still there are some problems to correct identification of the cultivars. And have they used modern genetic tools to sort that out and understand oh, what is truly different? Of course, this is the the only solution is going to arrive with the with the arrival of these modern genetic tools because the morphological traits usually used for identification are not enough to solve this problem, and only with a molecular market we can somehow unscramble of this problem with the identification. Okay, that really helps a lot. And I, I guess I've, I've heard a lot in the last few years about olive production being threatened, especially in Italy and Spain. Um, what are some of the current threats to olive production? Well, uh, it's a little bit hard to explain in a few words, but uh, uh, the point is that the olive growing has uh, changed a lot in the last, uh, let's say, 30, 35 years. So uh, currently there are both traditional orchards a modern intensive orchard living together with with different uh, with high different condition and the problem is that the production costs are quite different mainly because of the different harvest harvesting costs so uh, for instance in a recent study uh, indicated the cost of around 1.5 euro per kilo uh, for intensive in, uh, kilo of olive oil i mean euro per kilo of olive oil for intensive system versus uh, 3.5 for traditional growing. So that's the problem that currently uh, many traditional growers, uh, uh, for many traditional growers, the olive oil price is some years below the production cost. And this is uh, quite difficult to, to afford. No, I, I guess so. What about diseases that are happening in the area? Are there um, especially uh, endemic issues with uh, xylella or other types of pathogens? Yes, yes. I forgot to mention also the the uh, current problem with the Xylella fastidiosa, 
Um, hopefully, this uh, problem is uh, already limited to a, a small region in the south of Italy, uh, the, the Puglia region. Um, there have been some cases, but isolated cases in other areas of the European Union. So actually, we have been starting working with uh, breeding for Silela fastidiosa resistant. But uh, at, at the day, uh, there are not uh, a general problem with this disease. But it's also, uh, I can consider a, a warning for the future risks that could appear in the future uh, with uh, some uh, disease. So it's important to have the breeding tools developed in case they are necessary. And let me ask you a little bit more about that. Could you explain what xylella does to the tree? And are there different genotypes that are resistant? Yes, uh, uh, the disease caused uh, by, by xylella is called uh, olive quick decline symptoms. So it's uh, the death of the tree uh, occurred uh, rapidly, let's say in two, three years in the areas where there is a combination of factors, including uh, the most uh, pathogenic uh, isolate of the bacteria, uh, abundance of uh, vectors, insect vectors of the, of the bacteria, adequate uh, climate condition, and I also have to say that uh, there are not uh, the proper uh, growing techniques applied in the, in the orchard. So all this combination occurs, as I mentioned before, in, in the area of Puglia, and that's the reason of the important, really important disease that kill a million of trees in, in this area. Hopefully this is not uh, happening in any other place in Europe at the moment. And, and I, 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 I want to think that with the uh, surveillance uh, actually in, in course, it's, uh, it's, it's great that it could uh, occur again in the other country. Are there different varieties that have natural resistance that you as a breeder might be able to incorporate those genetics in uh, future crops? Yes, it's, this has been the first uh, step that we have been uh, working on. And uh, we have uh, at our facility at IFAPA in Cordoba, we have a, a huge uh, germaplast bank with more than 1,000 accession for all, all over the world. So in collaboration with the colleagues from, from Italy, from Bari, uh, we have been testing uh, a group of, of, uh, of uh, cultivars representative of the whole variability of the bank, which is called a core collection. And we have been testing in the condition of, of uh, Puglia, uh, both under control condition in greenhouse and under field condition. But uh, I have to say that uh, regretfully, most of the cultivar we have tested, including this uh, cultivar of the Germoplast bank, also some wild relatives and also some breeding selection. We already have a uh, uh, selected for other disease have been uh, quite susceptible to the disease caused by, by Silella. Only a couple of them seems to be promising as a tolerant cultivar. And we have to, to continue testing of the, uh, different cultivars and also start uh, working with uh, uh, crossing and breeding with these uh, few cultivars that seems to be tolerant at the moment. Okay, so as an olive breeder, I look at your job cause because I know many tree breeders like, uh, you know, citrus breeders and folks who work with peaches. And I think about olives and they seem to be even more difficult and that they would take even a longer time to breed the next generation. So what kind of traits are you looking for? And can you teach us a little bit about what it's like to be an olive breeder? How many years until it flowers before you can make the crosses? It's a, it's a absolutely a life work. <laughs> so <laughs> our, our breeding our program is uh, dedicated only to olive oil production. 
So we are not interested in table olive. There are other programs uh, dedicated to table olives. So our max selection criteria are uh, early bedding, uh, high productivity, of course, high oil content. We are also uh, paid a lot of attention to the oil quality, different chemical uh, parameters uh, related to oil quality, uh, suitability to different growing systems, and the resistance to the main pest and disease, as we have mentioned before. Uh, how long does it take? That's a good question. The, the selection process uh, from crossing, shortening the juvenile period, selection of the initial seedling population. Then we carry out a second step that we call intermediate step. And then the final selection step uh, uh, in comparative trial on the, uh, under different environmental conditions. So in total, it takes uh, around 20 years for the whole selection process before releasing a new cultivar. It's a, a huge difference compared to annual crops. Yes. And so for the listener, you know, we have a lot of folks who are not necessarily plant biology listeners. It, it's one of these things where you have to wait so long to determine if the cross you made produced something useful. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty amazing. And it's, it's um, really does show the uh, amount of kind of projection you need to use and the correct selection of parents. And each one of these trees that you grow as a candidate cultivar yeah, of uh, it has it takes up space and takes up labor and how what else do you have to do to grow those trees before they flower we we, we try to to make a first selection uh, after the seed germination in the greenhouse so this way we can discard uh, a certain pro proportion of, of the of the genotype we generated every year then uh, in the in the field we use to force the growth of the plants as much as possible because the trees have to reach uh, a certain size before flowering. This is uh, related to the juvenile period. And then we have to try to, to discard the uh, useless uh, treats as soon as possible. I, I always remember a citation I used in my PhD uh, by uh, Allard uh, that said that the breeder have to develop a sense of cruelty. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it's, it's difficult because you uh, you get in love with your uh, genotypes and, and it's difficult to discard some of them, but you have to because otherwise the, the amount of work increased year after year. So it's, it's the, at least at the first year, it's not uh, related with uh, discarding the selecting. That's, that's the point. You have to discard as soon as possible all, all of the seedling and genotype that you see to be uh, not uh, useful at all. Well, this is all really interesting. Well, we're speaking with Professor Lorenzo Leon. He's at IFAPA in Cordoba, Spain. And uh, we're talking about olive breeding and how do you come up with the next generation of high quality olives, in this case for oil, but also discussed table olives and their role. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. I gotta talk to someone about this here bioengineered label. It's on my damn Doritos, and I'm fixing to catch me some autism if it's full of that GMO nonsense. I'm sorry, sir, but that label simply means the product may contain some ingredients that originated from a genetically engineered crop. It's the law that passed a long time ago, and you'll see that label in 2022 a lot. Well, I don't like it. 
Tinkering with nature is no job for Fauci or the Monsantos. There's probably 5G in my Mountain Dew, and glyphosate's in my Natty Light. Now what's the story, darling? Well, sir, I guess I'm not sure. I wish there was someone else that could give us some answers. That would be me, Kevin Fulta here. I've put together a program to train customer service professionals and anyone that may have to answer questions about the new bioengineered label. The program is performed live. We work through drills, answer questions, and diffuse the ambiguity around this new mandate. I provide excellent training materials and strategies to help your team confidently field the confusing questions your customers will ultimately have. Worse. We expect to see this simple, unnecessary product label inflame a disinformation campaign. That's going to further confuse consumers. Prepare now. Contact me and we'll book training sessions on how to field questions on the bioengineered label, inform your consumer, and clarify the confusion around safe food ingredients. For more information, check kevinfolta.com forward slash services. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Professor Lorenzo Leon. He's a olive breeder in Cordoba, Spain, and we're speaking about olives and the priorities for olive breeders and what it takes to create the next best cultivar. And one of the big things is time. <laughs> 20 years from when you make that cross before you really can release a cultivar. And let me even take this one further. Once you release the cultivar, uh, once you say you have a very good genotype, you have one tree. Mm -hmm. How long does it take before you can put a, a thousand trees in somebody's orchard? Do you have to graft them, or do, do you uh, just take a, a air layer, or how do you pro how do you propagate that next generation? We, we use uh, in olive we use uh, uh, vegetative propagation because uh, most of the cultivars and genotype from crosses are very good at rooting. So we have no problem. We have no uh, to use uh, grafting usually. But you have to take in mind that, that during the selection process, during the successive uh, step of selection, we increase the number of trees of each promising genotype. So in the last step of selection, we can be trying, let's say, around 1,000 or 2,000 trees of the promising genotypes. So from this point, uh, it takes a little bit from releasing to the nurseries to have the, the uh, necessary amount of plants for selling, for marketing the, the new varieties. But usually in a couple of years, two, three years, they are uh, already available for, for the growers. Now, this is good. And I, I really want to emphasize this because so many people say, well, why should breeders um, have licensing or protection for their varieties. They should just give them away. But here you have 20 years of yourself invested in probably hundreds of acres of, of land and fertilizer and labor and pruning and to, for 20 years to figure out if you have one good cultivar. <laughs> yeah, so it, of course. And it's a little bit uh, tricky in some cases. Like for us, for instance, we are working in a public institution so some growers are not uh, very, <laughs> uh, they, they don't understand why they have to pay uh, an extra uh, um, uh, royalty for, for this new cultivar. But they have to take in mind that it's very important for us because this uh, somehow helps us to finance the breeding program. So 
the most royalty we can get uh, from the new cultivars, the most uh, work we can uh, manage and, and plan for the future. So it's it's not easy in in olive because it's a, a quite traditional uh, crop, but uh, but they have to get used uh, like happening in any other fruit uh, tree species, I think. Yeah, I, I, I totally understand that as a public scientist as well, that we have growers who feel that they pay this in their taxes and they should be able to obtain germplasm. But the breeding programs innovate, they continue to innovate because they have royalty money. And so it's a really a self-feeding process and ensures the future of the crop. Um, how much does genomics play in your research? Well, at the moment, we are working mostly in developing genomic tools useful for breeding. But at this time, I have to say that they have still limited practical use. We are working in retard compared with other fruit tree species. But in recent years, hopefully, the genome of the olive has been sequenced in the last two, three years. Now we are working in a research project where the, we it will re-sequence uh, hopefully up to 100 different cultivars. And all of all of this, I think it could be useful to develop a genome-wide association studies, uh, what is called a GWAS. Um, there are also some uh, people working on transcriptomic approaches, uh, etc. So um, still, uh, and scrambling the whole picture involved in these uh, processes is, uh, I have to say that uh, is still uh, very far from being from being uh, totally accomplished. Anyway, uh, at least at the moment, uh, some important applications are already in use. As we mentioned uh, uh, before, the development of uh, molecular markets for identification of cultivar, or also for us, it's quite important the development of a market for paternity testing in our process. So some things are already available. Some other we have to wait a little bit to be of practical use. Are there markers associated with specific traits that can help you narrow the number of seedlings you look at every year? That's the final objective of all this work, but it's not uh, so easy. Most of the uh, interesting traits are of uh, quantitative uh, matters, so it, it doesn't depend only from a, a single gene. So there's a lot of genes that are involved with that, and it's uh, complicated to design uh, useful to but uh, at the end of the day that's the the objective of all these uh, research studies we are doing related to the genomic is uh, is for uh, develop a useful tool for breeders okay because I, I could see how that would be really useful but also take a long time to develop and yeah it, yeah so it it seems like a like a would just be so good to be able to focus from maybe 100 selections that were that were from a promising cross to uh -huh. maybe you know, four or five that bear a certain number of markers suggesting that oil content would be good, that kind of thing. Is, uh, is the, the problem, the universal problem is we are a, a certain amount of resources. So you have to, to choose where do you invest most of your resources. So it's not easy. No, it's not. That's It's a challenge for many breeding programs. And I believe that we should be flooding more money into the development of, of more cultivars, like in, mm -hmm. in doing this kind of work. But what about um, issues of gene editing or transgenics? I know you're in the EU and this kind of thing is still forbidden, but are there laboratories who are thinking about gene editing approaches using to, to improve maybe certain traits in olive? Well, I, I'm not working directly on these uh, topics, but there are some, some colleagues that I know I've been working and developing uh, transgenic approaches. 
Uh, the initial problem is that all it is a recalcitrant species for in vitro manipulation, but uh, hopefully in the last uh, two, three decades, uh, genetic transformation protocol have already been developed and been used for obtaining some transgenic examples, uh, uh, expressing potential genes of interest uh, related to disease tolerance or abiotic stress tolerance, uh, plant architecture, flowering, and so on. However, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, the, the strict rules that we, there are in the European Union regarding transgenic uh, approaches. So uh, only scientific studies have been done and not a practical application are, are expected in the short term. And, and regarding uh, modern editing approaches such, such as the CRISPR-Cas9, uh, you may know that it was uh, somehow discovered by a Spanish uh, researcher in, in, in Alicante, but uh, in the European <laughs> Union, we have, a, again, a limited uh, application of this tool. So as far as I know, there are not uh, currently any works ongoing uh, in all due to the current limitation, hopefully. I hope that in the future, uh, the regulatory norms can change and, and allow this uh, more research in these topics. Yeah, it was very disappointing that he did not receive more credit for his role yeah. in the discovery. <laughs> I, I mean, certainly it was pivotal. And um, his, his name escapes me at the moment. I spoke about him yesterday in my class. Francis, and... It's called Francis Mojica. And, and many people in Spain, we were expecting the Nobel Prize uh, for him also this year. But... Uh, at the end, it wasn't possible. <laughs> yeah, well, he actually discovered the uh, clustered islands of repeats that were the foundation of the discovery. Yeah. Ultimately, anyway, that's a little bit a little bit of an aside. But if, as a breeder, you could choose any one trait that you would really like to see change quickly to help the industry in Spain or maybe worldwide, what trait would you change? Well, it's hard to answer, but uh, probably. Not uh, not a trade, but a, a problem, and, and it's all the problems related to the future climate change, global warming, that will be. Uh, I think it will be a main challenge in in the coming years. So, um, some effects are already observable in in today. Uh, for example, the the increase of winter temperature here in the Mediterranean areas can cause some year at least can cause some the synchronized uh, flowering or even the total lack of flowering. So uh, it's important to, to develop new cultivars with low chilling requirements uh, for the future. Um, and early flowering cultivar will be also quite desirable to avoid the heat and water threat uh, during the flowering. So we are already working on these topics by uh, testing cultivars and selection uh, under the natural condition in areas with uh, warm winters like uh, Happening, for instance, in Spain, in Canary Island, and 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 I think a similar problem you have in 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 the USA for facing uh, for develop olive growing in Florida, for instance. I think so. It's, it's something that could be important in in the future. Now, I, I think people don't appreciate that that you know you have these groves or the, of orchards of trees that are large trees that are in place. And whereas a climate can change over 20 years or 50 years to change, mm -hmm. you know, degree uh, Fahrenheit, you know, maybe half a degree Celsius, you don't change the trees and you can't pick them up and move them. And uh -huh. so you have to have trees that are able to grow in a wider range of, of, of uh, environments. Yeah. And, you know, there are some low chill varieties I thought from um, uh, Tunisia. I know that we've mm -hmm. worked with Chamali to some degree. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and uh, and that those kinds of uh, traits exist. Are are those a, a key area of emphasis in the breeding program? Yes, but there are, we need uh, still a lot of information before starting a, a specific uh, line of breeding for this character because there are a lot of uh, things we have to discover first related to the chilling accumulation units related to the different flowering traits. So we are not at the at the moment we are not at the point to start. Uh, I think we are not at the point to start a breeding work, but uh, for sure it's going to be a, a objective for future. Are there programs in the world that are breeding for table olives? As far as I know, uh, there are a, a, a good uh, breeding uh, program in, at the University of Sevilla in, in Spain also. And there are also some developing in, well, uh, both for uh, olive oil production and for table olives, most of the breeding effort are uh, located in Spain, uh, Italy, and Israel. They probably... Spain and Italy, the two of the most important olive uh, oil producers, and, and Israel, because I think that of uh, uh, cultural uh, research uh, in in the past time. So uh, all of them are most uh, dedicated to olive oil production, but uh, also all of them, uh, some of them are also dedicated to table olives, trying to develop new cultivar. Uh, more adapted to modern intensive growing systems. This is the main the main point right now for all the breeding programs because uh, of the cost of, of labor for harvesting. So everybody is uh, trying to to go to move to mechanical harvesting, both for olive oil production and table olive production. Now, very good. As a very different sets of genetics between olive oil olives and. Uh, table olive um, olives, or do you once in a while in breeding for an, uh, an olive oil olive find one that you go, oh, this one tastes really good? Uh, do you, is it two different things, or are they kind of related? No, it, it doesn't happen usually because we are not testing for table olive, but it could be also <laughs> could be a possibility. But uh, the the main criteria are quite different because for olive oil production, uh, obviously the main criteria is oil content. So you are the first uh, selection criteria is high oil content. While for table olive production, fruit side is a, a really important way. So usually you are not using the same parents. So if you are working for uh, olive oil production, your uh, your breeding is going in this direction and not in the other direction. But anyway, I have to mention that already there are some um, traditional cultivars that uh, are called dual purpose cultivars because they can be used both for olive oil production and table olive production. They have more or less intermediate uh, char- characteristic. So they can be used for for both purposes. For instance, there's a cultivar in in our area here in Cordoba called Oji Blanca that uh, can be used for both olive oil and table olives. So the growers uh, decided each year if they are going to, uh, depending on the market price, they are uh, if they are going to use the, the crop for table olives or olive oil. So this could be also quite interesting to develop more cultivar with this uh, double aptitude. Well, I think you're in a really good place because it seems to me, from my perspective here in the States, that olive oil is becoming more valuable and that there is maybe even some movement away from seed oils um, in some areas and that there's uh, health benefits of the monounsaturated olive oils. Do you expect that olive oil or olive breeding programs will be expanding in the future and that maybe you'll see more resources coming to your laboratory? What do you predict for the future? Well, I, I really hope so, but that because uh, 
in fact, uh, olive oil is going to expand in the future for sure. Here in, in Spain, uh, in the last uh, five, ten years, there's a huge spreading of olive uh, cultivation. It's substituting many annual crops like uh, wheat, sunflower, and so on that are much, le much uh, less profitable. So it's going to expand in the future for sure. Uh, production, world production is increasing year after year, but the consumption is also increasing at the same time. So I think the market is uh, a lot of market to conquer by olive oil because of the healthy property of olive oil. Uh, probably the United States is the main consumer of olive oil, but can you imagine if we can introduce olive oil consumption in China? There will be a lot of uh, millions of consumers. So there, I think there are room for a lot of new uh, plantings, and hopefully uh, this will be parallel to uh, an increase in, in funding, in particular for breeding programs like, uh, like us. So I, I know that in the EU, a number of uh, member states have had financial uh, pullbacks, you know, rollbacks of certain scientific programs, and Spain has been no exception. Does that kind of uh, political uh, pressure threaten a program like yours that has so much historical investment and, and takes so long that maybe politicians don't see the value in in an olive breeding program? Yeah, unfortunately, I, I agree with, with, your, with your comment because as you mentioned, olive breeding is not a, a, a common project of three-year duration. So you develop the, the the activities and then close and start with a new uh, different project. So it's an investment of a future. So you need the 20 years. So you need the funding for these 20 years. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know at what extent I can criticize right now. <laughs> no, no, I, I understand it. It's but, you're, you're you're trying to run a twenty-year, decades-long program yeah. uh, when uh, financial decisions are made quarterly. Yeah, I I, I dedicate my whole uh, scientific career. I, I get my PhD degree in two thousand two, so I've been working. I'm probably going to to be working all my life in in olive breeding. So what can I say? We have been able to, to continue the program up until now. I think uh, the perspective will be good and, and hopefully we can continue in the future. But at least in Spain, the main problem is uh, related to human resources. So um, the politician institution, uh, they are not uh, quite aware of the need of, of uh, funding to, to, to get new people working in this program because uh, we are getting older and we need some <laughs> rejuvenation and some people that continue because uh, just to have an idea, the cross that I, I'm going to make next year, I'm not going to finish this work. So I need someone to, uh, um, uh, how can I say, to inherit all this work and continue <laughs> in the future. Uh, I'm not, uh, I, I can say that I, I'm still young, but I still... Uh, uh, starting and thinking in the in this topic. So, what the what the point of all this work if we can, we are not able to continue in the future? So, um, I I really want uh, to to transmit all all this information to my my bosses and uh, all the politicians we used to to receive in visit and, and try to to let them know that it's really important to invest in science, of course, and particularly in this type of science. That was the most important thing I've heard in a long time because I didn't really appreciate that. Like the crosses you make today yeah. will produce for somebody after you've retired. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's the point. 
I'm almost I I I almost uh, 50 years old, so um, uh, well, I'm probably I'm going to work until past 70 due to the circumstance, the economic circumstances. But anyway, the the point is that we need that young people. We are uh, we are uh, forming a lot of young people, really excellent people. That in uh, fortunately and in Spain is a, is a real problem. Uh, then uh, they have to go abroad to to continue their career. So. Uh, it's important, uh, but difficult to to transmit to politicians the, the the importance of the scientific work. This is maybe an excellent place to conclude. It was very good. If anybody wants to learn more about you and your program and olive breeding in Spain, is there a website or a place they can look? I, I think the the easiest the easiest way is uh, uh, let me suggest the audience to follow uh, our updates on Twitter because uh, we are managing. Uh, uh, a Twitter account that you can find us in, at uh, Olive Reading in English uh, or also uh, at uh, Mejora de Olivo in Espanol. So then you can find all the updates, all the news and uh, easily contact with me if you have uh, any question or, or something. That's great. And could you repeat the Twitter username one more time? Yeah, it's Olive Reading in English or Mejora de Olivo in Spanish. Very good. And I'll make sure I put those in the show notes. So, uh, Lorenzo, thank you very much for meeting with me today. This was a great episode, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Joe. I really appreciate being part of this uh, magnificent uh, podcast series, so it's been a pleasure for me. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You know the drill. Write reviews, tell friends, help me expand this audience. I think that when you hear about what plant breeders go through and their timeline and horizon, this is fascinating to everybody and something that people don't appreciate. So help me out, you know, spread the word. If you can afford a few bucks, send a dollar a month on Patreon. It helps us boost the posts inside Facebook and other social media venues and reach a broader audience. And it's working. I think our numbers keep going up mostly because of expanded pushes through social media. But um, I thank all of you for listening. You know, you really make this worth doing. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. 
With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.